Welcome to The Power of Data, the podcast by Dun & Bradstreet. Data is everywhere, and there is more created every second of every day. Join us to hear from leaders unlocking the value of data. Welcome back to The Power of Data podcast. Today, you're going to hear from some extraordinary leaders. Each have had colorful careers and will bring unique insights to the conversation today. And the title is demonstrative of our belief and intent at Dun & Bradstreet. It's our mission to help you, the industry, power the next paradigm using data, analytics, and ultimately insights to power superior performance. I want to start with an excerpt from a book, and it was actually a book I was given a couple of years ago. The book starts like this. The world as we know it today wouldn't work very well without insurance. If there was no insurance, you wouldn't be able to drive a car. You wouldn't be able to fly an airplane. You couldn't travel on a ship, nor could a ship carry cargo. You couldn't attend a sporting event. In most countries, it would be impossible to obtain a mortgage on a house. Insurance is truly an intrinsic part of today's economic order. If insurance did not exist, someone would have to invent it. Today, we can't do much of that. We're traveling less, and in-person events are out of the question. And subsequently, an industry known to be built on relationships and trust has had to rethink many parts of its day-to-day business. It could be said that the pandemic highlights the huge reliance the industry has had on legacy ways of working. Large manned call centers and strained networks and a lack of devices enabled for home working wouldn't be things uncommon to this industry. The pandemic's also highlighted across many industries the fragility of operating models and how operations could grind to a halt if a single business unit experienced a trade complication of some sort. And that means the time for change is now unavoidable. The insurers that will lead in a post-COVID world are those that will use the impact of the pandemic as the opportunity to take action, to embrace digital experiences, to embrace the understanding of their customers, to utilize automation and future-proof their operating models by investing in data and digital technologies. Today, I'm delighted to welcome a great plethora of guests, but the first guest we have today is someone who is as much a mentor and a friend as someone I have admired for many years. He's also the author of the book from which I just read. Stephen Catlin was the founder and CEO of Catlin, then sold to Excel to become Excel Catlin, and then on to AXA. Just recently, in the last couple of years, Stephen got back together with former superstar colleagues to build a Greenfield insurer, a next generation insurer ready for the world today. So with no further ado, I am delighted to introduce Stephen Catlin to you all today. Thank you, Stephen. Sam, thank you so much. And very kind introduction. I'm very glad to be here. The question that has been posed to me is, what was it like first time round? And this is where I show my age, which is at the end of 1984, as opposed to the formation of Convex, which happened in May last year. Is it the same? Is it different? Well, the first thing you'd say is when we started Catlin back in 84, I had literally just turned 30, which shows you how mad I was in doing something like that at that stage. And we started with two people and we had £25,000 paid up capital and that was it. We had a Lloyd syndicate and frankly, no network, no relationships, really little bit and certainly no track record and absolutely working on the shoestring. So much of what we did was blank sheet of paper and gut instinct. What is still the same today, in my view, is personal relationships, trust, experience and consistency. Now, I've always believed in those concepts right from the get-go. And as we formed Convex last year, we found that, in fact, those qualities, if you deem them to be qualities, jumped across as if we'd never sold Catlin to Excel. 
And therefore, we had a massive head start this time around, helped by the fact that we had paid up capital startup of $1.7 billion, which is slightly different to £25,000. We started, I think, with 16 people. We're now 275 people on board with another 50 to come on board but before the end of the year. To put that in context, we are still less than 100 people at the stage of 9-11. We have this most massive opportunity in front of us, and we're very blessed. I think Paul Brown, my colleague, whom I've worked with now for 35 years, we'd both say to you, look, we thought through carefully the casualty cycle. We wonder whether we're a year premature, transpired. We weren't, which is great. But nobody, absolutely nobody could have dreamt up COVID-19 when it happened. And it certainly wasn't in our business planning or model. And we find ourselves purely by luck, absolutely inundated with opportunity and where the real luck is, free of any meaningful exposure on our direct account from COVID-19 because we only started writing at 1-1. On the reinsurance side, we're probably 60% underweight for our size and therefore the reinsurance cost, whatever that might be, is considerably less. Now, what are the opportunities, what are the differences between then and now? Well, clearly we've got more resource. We've got distribution, we've got relationships, we've built up trust. And the thing about it, I say this to so many people, you can't buy experience off the top shelf of a supermarket. Nor indeed can you buy trust. You have to earn them. And the only way you earn them is by consistency and hard work. And we've been extremely blessed to bring across from our old firm into the new firm some of those qualities. The other benefit we have, frankly, is we're starting with a clean balance sheet. No legacy of process, no legacy of claims, and the real opportunity to be the insurance company of the future. Now, easy to say, a lot more difficult to do. Everybody talks about the digital world, which is important and a great opportunity, but it actually starts with the collection of data. And one of the challenges we've found as a management team is to persuade our colleagues in the firm that collecting data just for your single person, for your function, doesn't work because you have to collect data which can be used for all functions at the same time. Otherwise, you get four or five versions of the truth, which is the position most carriers are in at the moment. So we have the opportunity to address that issue up front, which we're doing, and then to concentrate on how can we best digitally approach the opportunities and using algorithms and AI to have better modeling, better risk analysis, better risk management, better risk aggregation, which indeed leads to better and fairer pricing for our clients, but at the same time, allowing us to be clear that we have an adequate return on capital for our shareholders over a five-year period. Now, change has to happen. And those that embrace change in the marketplace, whatever size or shape they are, carrier or broker, are the ones that will win. The ones that are not prepared to change, won't embrace change, will be the losers. And the losers will come to the forefront quickly. We've got maybe a minimum of two years, maybe maximum of five years to get there as an industry. We have to be relevant. We have to give value to our clients. We're not as relevant as we were 30 years ago, which deeply upsets me. We've fallen behind, partly because we haven't explained what we do, the limitations of what we have, and indeed, most importantly, the value proposition of insurance. Now, I had no idea that Sam was going to quote from the book, but I think that stands today, and I think it stood when we started 
35 years ago. Stephen, thank you very much. That was really interesting to understand your plans for the insurer of the future, as well as how important the collection of data is becoming relevant in the insurance industry. My name is James Harrison, and I'm the new head of insurance for Dun & Bradstreet in the UK and Ireland. Previous to DNB, I held roles at both Accenture and Deloitte focusing on digital strategy for insurance and reinsurance clients after I started my career in Lloyd's Market as a broker. Today, I'll be hosting this panel, and it was a great pleasure that I'll be joined by Sylvia Wampus from Swiss Re, James Kent from Willis Re, and of course, Stephen Catlin from Convex. We just heard about Stephen's background in the industry. So before we start the conversation, let's take a few moments to hear about the background and roles of our other two panelists, Sylvia and James. Absolutely. Thank you very much, James. So hello, everyone. Good afternoon. Good evening. Good morning. I have spent the last 15 years in the world of insurance after a start at McKinsey. I have tried many different sides of insurance, everything from life and pensions through broking to London market underwriting and now reinsurance at Swiss Re. Also tried many different parts of, of the value chain from sales through underwriting through to claims. And uh, my passion is about connecting the dots and especially firing up this value chain with technology. Thank you. And, and James? Good morning. Good afternoon, everyone. Great to be here. Enjoyed that little intro, Stephen. I'm very glad that while this is a digital and technology focused discussion, you didn't miss the point about trust and experience and underwriting and the items that really are critical to the business in conjunction with technology. My background is I took over as global CEO of Willis Re at the end of 2017. Before that, I was leading our North American business based in New York between 2010 and 2017. And before that, I led our Bermuda operation for the previous seven years before that. So have really spent the last two decades in what I would call the major reinsurance markets being the US, Bermuda, and now back into London. Great. Thank you. So let's start our discussion then. And uh, James, it'd be great to start with yourself. As you know, the insurance industry's digital capability is evolving. The Lloyd's market, as we see it, more and more placements are being utilized on the PPL platform. And we're seeing a drive from customers across subsectors for the need to manage their policies digitally. How have you adopted your corporate strategy to meet this change with the rise of digital and data? And do you think the industry has been proactive enough? I'll take those questions in reverse order and, and talk about the industry to start with. And the first thing I'll do is put a statistic out there in terms of the industry investment. And it can be looked at in two ways. You know, over $20 billion has been invested in, in insure tech companies since 2012. And many hundreds of billions have been invested when you widen that net for all digital investments. So, so the industry is investing. But what we need to establish is what do we mean by investment? And for some companies, it's purely speculative with potential exits, whereas others are investments for partnerships and supporting relative technology needs. I think that has been an interesting aspect in how the insure tech business has developed, where you know I think there was a perception at the beginning that insure tech companies were coming in to compete and trying to build insurance infrastructure themselves. And what that has morphed in is much more into the partnerships. In terms of those numbers that I spoke about, it's still less than 50% of what banks are investing. And I think the view that insurance is more complex than banking as a proxy, no, we're not investing enough. But given the trajectory of the spend, there's no question that the industry has woken up and that every insurance and reinsurance company, and for that matter, the brokers, has digital on our minds and, and we're investing heavily. I do think it's important to separate from investment in advanced analytics, which has been going on for decades. And then InsureTech is just one nuance of that development. So, you know, in summary, yes, yes, 
the digital investment is there, James. It's continuing at speed, and I think we will continue to see that. The trick, of course, to avoid the all scenario where you have 99 pieces of good data and it can be negated by one piece of bad data, and that comes back to Stephen's point about the understanding of risk and the point about trust and expertise. And then just on, on the second point about ourselves with the digital platform, the way we look at technology as a reinsurance broker is we have three options. We can buy, we can borrow, or we can build. And historically, the insurance and reinsurance broking business has a horrible track record of building. But there is no question that, that being part of the broader Willis Towers Watson is extremely helpful to us because part of part of Willis Towers Watson is, is a technology firm. I have a huge believer that, that ultimately the industry will get to a single digital platform to trade on, a bit like the stock market and the commodity markets do. But I think that is going to take an awful lot of cooperation. You mentioned the PPL platform. That's shown the way, but I, I should stress the PPL platform only operates for Lloyd's and not a global platform. And we operate in a global business. And the goal has to be a single global platform for, for digital trading. Yeah, so I can maybe comment a little bit upon sort of what, how, how I think Swiss Re has, has done things. So I think like many others, we have probably gone from tentative to determined in terms of data and analytics. We clearly started out with sort of servicing our primary clients with data and analytics solutions. I think now the realization is much stronger that this is equally important for the internal environment and especially underwriting. And coming back to what Stephen said about a single source of truth, I think that is now a, a true holy grail rather than having four or five versions of, of the same thing. And so we're definitely moving much stronger towards a unified data and analytics strategy. And we're also putting people in place whose 100% job this is. It's no longer a sidekick, if you will, but it's truly something that is taken seriously. Similar to the other speakers, I believe the industry has lagged behind, embarrassingly so, especially compared to banking and asset management, which insurance is not very different from. Of course, it's speeding up, but I think I also have a question mark in my head as to the exact effect, because investing is one thing, and then the question is, what do you get from it? And, and where do we see the difference made in, in the products that go down, out into the market? The inertia in underwriting systems and insurer workflows means that the adoption of new models and data can be very expensive and difficult to do so. Would you have any suggestion on how this can be solved? Yeah, I mean, of course, it's expensive and it's hard to do. But I think we're coming to a point where there's not a choice anymore, yeah. <laughs> also underlined by COVID. And I think it's just one of those things that our industry has to do in order to move forward and stay relevant. So I think it's a bit of a biting the bullet and also looking at what slightly unnecessary things can we then cut in order to afford this infrastructural change that absolutely needs to happen. It's an imperative for us as an industry to move forward. Fantastic. Thank you. Stephen, it'd be great to understand a bit more about the rise of digital and data and how you're applying that now with your new role in, with Convex. I would characterize it as a journey. I don't know how long that journey is going to last. I'd love to tell you one year, but as I said earlier, and Sylvie's just says the same thing, it starts out with how you collect data. It really does. Persuading people that you have to collect data holistically, but you have to win the hearts and minds of your colleagues 
you know, there's a mindset that has to be addressed. And I think the industry as a whole, we haven't done that. Once you've got good data, on the operating side, you should save quite a substantial amount of money. And my God, we need to do that as an industry. The frictional costs are far too high. We all know that. That desire and fight to get them down. It's not just that. It's also, can we, from this, make better decisions more quickly, more fairly, in every part of what we do. Now, James is fortunate. He doesn't have to scratch his head every day about reserving. And I tell you, that is a real joy for him, I would imagine. And in the next five years, without any doubt at all, as the county market unwinds, as COVID-19 unwinds, there's going to be a lot of head scratching about what actually do we have, what are the exposures to a balance sheet, and what do we need to do to put it right retrospectively and prospectively. James, you mentioned about InsureTech and the opportunities in InsureTech around partnerships. When I was focused on InsureTech in a previous role, I was starting to see how early stage businesses are really starting to use external data sources to what we call a high resolution view of their customer. Yep. And this is you know, this is helping to provide uh, strategic advantages for their partners, uh, their insurers and their broker partners. You know, it was helping to inform pricing. It's also helping to understand the types of products and services that could be offered or should be offered to their clients. With DNB, we have the largest data cloud available for corporation data, 400 million records of data, and it's updated, I think, I believe, it's 5 million times a day and curated from thousands of different data sources. So really, you know, we're working with any forward-thinking company on really leveraging that power of that data. That means that we can focus on building out that high-resolution view of the customer. That leads to product innovation. It also helps us to understand better the pricing for some underwriting risks. That inevitably will lead to positive business results for insurers, as well as for brokers, where they'll be able to understand more about their consumer base and offer more products, basically. When it comes to looking at those individual businesses that you do work with, we can look to understand the propensity for those guys to actually pay on time or whether that you know you should be looking at offering installments that's helping you understand your commercial arrangements as well with them and then lastly you know we support management supporting the foundational stone to your digital acceleration how ready do you think the market is to using external and non-traditional data sources so these are telematics, big data, sensory, AI, to really paint that grander picture of the customer? As a general answer, James, I would say very ready, but it does vary tremendously by, by risk class and geography. I'm not saying this because Stephen and Sylvia are on the call. We are dealing with two of the more sophisticated companies that operate in our industry, you know, Willis Re, we have about a thousand clients around the world, and you would be amazed at the the variety, or the range of sophistication in terms of those clients. And if I tell you that we have some clients in Florida that still receive premiums by mail, by checks through the mail, it, it varies tremendously. So, yeah. but as a rule, the industry is very much so. And you know, yeah. using third party data to help enrich decisions and populate the answer to questions no longer need to be asked is very powerful because it's creating a much better customer experience. And I, I think it's very interesting, you know, again, listening to Stephen's introduction and talking to many other contacts that we have around the, the, the startups that are coming into our business. If you talk to them, their theme is very much around the expense issue that was mentioned earlier and using technology to drive that, but also using technology to drive a much better customer experience. The biggest issue with this is a large part of this is around personal lines. 
or residential type of risks. And the regulators are really watching this around the trust issue with new data sources. And when the regulate, you know, the regulators are, are a bane of, of both the underwriting and, and the broking side of the business. They're there to protect the customer, but they certainly create high hurdles there. So they are ensuring that all parties trust the same data sources and that the proper rules are followed. As a general rule, we find that customers are happy to have their third-party data used, providing they can see there's a direct and visible benefit to them. And that third-party data also helps give a more objective view of risks. So that's a real, again, supporting the drive towards that. But in summary, I'd say that forward-looking insurers are open not just to new types of data, but where appropriate, opportunities to collect and, and stream that data from devices that is much quicker than is possible with traditional techniques to support the real-time decisions. So, you know, again, it comes back to the quicker the decisions, the more accurate the decisions, the more customer satisfaction, and in theory, customer retention. And Sylvie, considering your background, looking at group underwriting now for, for Swiss Re, but previously, you know, you've taken roles in tax as well. So it'd be great to get your, your response to that question. Yeah, so I actually disagree a little bit with James there. I mean, I think there's certainly interest and willingness to take these data sets into account. However, I think that the ability at the present time, if if I really generalize across the market, I think it's much smaller. And why am I saying that? It's because I see that I think there's a huge backlog of fixing the basics when it comes to internal data, because you have to kind of fix your internal data first and make sure that you can trust that again, have this single source of truth. And then once you have that basic in order, you can then augment that with external data. And frankly, I don't think that the industry is quite there yet. And I think something that complicates that is the fact that many legacy systems are notoriously bad at dealing with external data. They struggle with the internal piece to begin with. So I think the ability is still lagging behind. There's certainly enthusiasm and and willingness to augment insights with non-traditional data, but it's a challenge on how to bring it on board, both into the machines, but probably also a little bit into the humans and realizing that your skills as an underwriter can indeed be augmented by third-party data. So it's sorting out the foundation first and then moving forward with some more interesting stuff. And Stephen, at Convex, are you now sort of looking at using it, you know, non-traditional data sources to look at how you inform your view of the customer? It sounds like you'd like me to do a plug for Dun & Bradstreet, I think, here. I didn't ask, but if you go for it, that's fine with me. <laughs> to Sylvie's point, I completely agree. Using outside data is helpful, but finding a way of integrating that into your own data capture without polluting it has got to be a key to the future. I mean, my ask of Dun & Bradstreet is make certain that when you collect data, you are consistent in how you do it, because otherwise you've got a moving goalpost. But this is work in progress for every one of us. A couple of of observations there. I, I, I think if you look at Convex and Swiss, they are writing, not exclusively, but generally complex industrial risks. And that is a difficult part of the market. If you come down to the most basic area of the market, I would say motor or auto is the most straightforward. And that's where you are seeing technology companies actually in there using automated underwriting to support decisions. I think the area that is actually most behind, because I I do think that the complex PNC business is getting there. If you look at the life business, and we sometimes forget that life is 50% of the insurance worldwide, that part of the business is miles behind where the PNC world is. 
and the opportunity for technology to get into the life world to support the underwriting there, it's going to be needed. And dynamic pricing can be used to increase profitability, which is going to be especially important in the current low rate environment. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the life business is generally a direct non-brokered industry. That's the area that lags most. Is not a surprise. Yeah, I completely agree with life. When I was looking at using external data sources in a previous role, the focus for me was very much on the SME market. It just felt like that was a huge opportunity. You know, traditionally, it's been underserved. And you know, if you look at some reports there, not many can take a forty-five grand hit to their book of business. And you know, that was back in three years ago. So I can imagine now with coronavirus, it's you know, it's even worse, and now even more important. Looking at customer understanding then, so if we'd be able to provide a higher resolution view of that consumer, that leads to product innovation, or it should do. And for those of us that have worked on the call or associated with the Lloyd's market, I think it's very clear that it's an incredibly dynamic market with the people, the framework, and the risk appetite to ensure you know anything from, I think the phrase is from spacecrafts to Ming vases, isn't it? And everything in between. So when it comes to the subject matter of risk, I don't think innovation has ever really been a problem for the market. However, apart from the likes of insurance-linked securities and parametric products being event-driven, policies, especially insurance, and like other subsectors in insurance as well, they tend to be loss indemnity-driven. And that's been the case for a very, very long time. Stephen, I'd be really interested to get your thoughts on this. Could you see, you know, through enhanced data analytics, the start of a new suite of different types of products in the market that vary in terms of the way they are structured? Well, the short answer to that is yes. But it's a very complex question. I forget who said it in this call, but somebody said about the banks and what they were doing. Well, the banks on stock markets, their data capture is actually much narrower, narrower than we are. And to James's point, you know, motor is an easy data capture. Actually, personal lines property is not bad. Life isn't that difficult, honestly. The data capture is pretty similar. When you get into the complex risk, which is what James was talking about earlier on, then you get challenged. The collection of data is more complex. Have we cracked that nut? No, none of us have. I think we can. Whether lawyers can do it or not, that's an entirely different issue. I mean, they have unfortunately got themselves in a situation where they got consumed with the past with a very high expense ratio. And as far as I can see, James, you may disagree on this, I can't see them investing as a society that much money significantly into the future of complex, which which has always been part of Lloyd's history. I'm wishing they would and thinking more laterally. James, is there anything you wanted to add to, to Stephen's comments? No argument at all about the more obvious opportunities. In terms of the question beyond that around product innovation, We see it most needed around the complex risks, cyber, climate-related risks, non-damaged BI, and intellectual property, which are all areas that are grossly underinsured and and essentially retained by governments or by the individuals and not by the industry. So we spoke about the life industry, and I agree with Stephen, it's not as complex as the commercial PNC business. And increasing their use of data and analytics will help improve pricing techniques, digital sales because it is really a personal lines type of product. And the underwriting process, making it less invasive, 
time consuming and all that leads to greater efficiency and, and lower expenses. So broadly agree with Stephen there that at the more complex end of the business, it is, it is hugely expensive for underwriting companies to undertake. And as a consequence, you know, it sounds like I'm plugging the broker here, but that's that's where the broker market comes in, where we're supporting so many of our clients through the technology and expertise that we have and the data that we have. We have to think as clients as well in terms of this debate. And as you probably know, I'm chairman of the steering group for pandemic. And one of the issues here is governments, I say that plural, and clients, plural, and countries, plural, don't really look at risk holistically. The actual buyer tends to buy from fear of the loss or whether it's a debt-driven decision or a regulatory decision. You don't wake up and, yippee, I'm going to buy myself an insurance policy. It's not how it works. And for the record, there were some quite thoughtful pandemic policies out there giving the coverage people want today. But guess what? Two, three years ago, no client would pay the price for the product. Today, yeah. just about everybody would buy it. And I do think as we look at this, there's an educative thing with clients and governments about just looking at the five-year risk doesn't do it, or the 10-year, or the 15-year, or even the 25-year. I mean, getting a politician to concentrate beyond five years is quite difficult. At 10 years, they're losing interest. 15 years, they're dozing off. And at 25-year return, they're snoring. You know, they've just lost it. So we've got that issue to deal with in terms of persuading our client base. We are adding value to your personal circumstances. And we haven't done that very well. And we also have to be honest as an industry about what we can and what we cannot do. And, and James and I, looking at pandemic, it's abundantly clear there is no solution ever going to be provided entirely by the insurance industry. Why? Because our capital is so far less than the aggregation of exposure. All we can do is mitigate a government's risk and maybe help them with distribution and risk management and risk control. The same applies to cyber. You could easily have a cyber loss with the same financial consequences of pandemic. I'm hoping people will actually now really take that to heart. Yeah. And you mentioned climate risk earlier on. I mean, climate risk, we don't know where it's going, but it feels like it's catching up pretty damn quickly to the other two. So as an industry, we're never, ever going to be able to meet the entire need because we don't have the capital to do it. And if we did have the capital to do it, nobody would buy the product. It would be too expensive to justify the return of capital we have to give to our shareholder. So there's a separate part of the debate. We're not isolationist here. We're part of the world and its economy. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Stephen. It'd be now great to talk about market dynamics, and especially when we have two seasoned Lloyd's players here. So as data capabilities improve across the market, that's going to provide huge advantages for your traditional base, whether you're an insurer or broker. And it could mean that using that insight, you could actually start to expand your traditional services and maybe move into other areas. Are we going to see an expansion of services from the insurers and brokers? And is that going to fundamentally change the way the market operates with itself? and the interactions between the broker and underwriter. It, James, you touched on it before about the value of the broker, so it'd be good to go to you first on this one as well. Yeah, so what is our number one goal in terms of serving our clients? It is to support them making the best decisions that they can. And technology is, is a facilitator for that, but it is only one facilitator. And insurers are in the same boat. You know, They want to help their clients make the best decision they can. So innovative use of data 
will definitely unlock technological potential, but it needs to be the right data used in the right way to support a business model that goes back to all the things that Stephen spoke about, which is underwriting trust, willingness to pay, you know, all those features matter supported by technology. So our core offering won't change, but there's no question that that when I look back to 2016, when Willis and Towers Watson came together, that the, the big change there for us as Legacy Willis was partnering with a company that had consulting and technology capabilities, particularly in supporting underwriting decisions that we didn't have ourselves. So yeah. I'd describe what we have is core reinsurance analytics, but we didn't have the underwriting analytics or we, we had part of them, but certainly not to the, the scale that the Towers Watson side of the business had. So, you know, that better information and technology has allowed us to give clients better advice to achieve their goals. And that's, that's been a good thing. And I only see that continuing to happen. And that includes, you know, the product development. I think the other thing is it's not just about profit. You know, a large part of what the insurance world does is around risk mitigation. And there is, you know, by leveraging data and analytics, it does allow insurers to know their policyholders much better, which allow them to offer better products. You know, a good example is going back to the life side where, you know, partnering policyholders on their health and making better decisions, offering incentives around that. You know, that's not around profit. That's around supporting your customers to a better lifestyle that leads to them being a better client for you. So, you know, I just see this all evolving in that way, James, with smarter and better data and technology. And the other side of the fence then, Stephen, it'd be great to get your perspective on that as well. Well, for the absence of doubt, I'm actually a fan of the brokers when they add value. And there's certain things that they can do that we can't do. And they can also be perceived by the clients not having their eggs in one basket and they can actually offer different products. There should be a, a symbiotic relationship between client, broker, and underwriter, because we can all fulfill and should fulfill different roles, but being communicating with each other and being transparent with each other at the same time. And I think, going back to the innovation question, if you start with basic premises, you listen to your client, you hear what he's frightened about or he's concerned about, and then you develop a product to meet his perceived need. Now, if you think his perceived need is fundamentally wrong, you're just going to have to say, I'm sorry, I don't see the need. But if you understand the need, then we can be innovative and try to work out how we can provide a product to him, which makes sense to his balance sheet, and at the same time gives our balance sheet an adequate return on capital. I mean, James is in a slightly different position in that he's an intermediary between the two parties, and he has to earn his money through what he does in intermediary. And part of it is consultancy. Brilliant. The last section here we want to talk about was talent and diversity and how the market can support innovation as well. So insurance, like other industries, has a spotlight on its approach to diversity. You know, a diversity of talent leads to a diversity of thought, which leads to positive business connotations. What are the business impacts that you're seeing from your approach to diversity? James, it'd be great to get your perspective on this first. You know, I think as an industry, we lag, and I, and I put Willis Ree there, you know, we are historically an undiverse business, but I would say that is a generational issue. And when I look at our colleagues up to 15 years of experience, they're incredibly diverse in many measurements, whichever way you want to measure diversity. It's a pleasure to see. We have a generational issue above that where, putting it bluntly, we're largely a bunch of middle-aged white men. And that's historically where the reinsurance broking business has been, particularly here in London. So it is a topic that resides on our executive committee. So the individuals that look after that for us, it is part of our monthly executive management commitment to the business. 
And you just can't argue with the statistics that the more diverse businesses are more productive in many ways. And, and I should say that the broader Willis Taz Watson does a much better job than Willis Rees. So I'm, I'm happy to call that out. You know, I think it also allows you to relate to your customers' expectations because customers are changing rapidly. I, I do think that the pandemic in some ways is going to help accelerate diversity. And I, I will use working parents as an example. And we do, one of the reasons we're not diverse in what I would call the top half of our business in terms of experience is that a lot of women leave the business to become the primary child carer. And we do a lousy job of retaining that. And, and the ability or this, this stigma that remote working is not possible has gone in many ways. And if that helps us to retain talent, then the pandemic in that sense will have been a very good thing for the industry. Very interesting. Thank you. Sylvie, let's go to you on this one. You know, we're trying to build diversity, not just in terms of gender, but also background, diversity of thought, socioeconomic, all of that. And, you know, a couple of observations. What do I see? So I think because of diversity, we actually have more difficult conversations but they're actually better because not everybody agrees up front with what everybody else is saying, which is actually quite beautiful. It's a bit more painful, but it's more beautiful. I think we're having a lot more healthy questions of why are we doing this and what's the so what of what we're doing, as opposed to everybody just automatically accepting that this is the way we've always done things and therefore we should continue. And we certainly have more multifaceted discussions because people with different backgrounds look at the same thing but come to different conclusions. And just coming back briefly on the sort of the data analytics thing, I think as we have brought in more people with technological backgrounds, we actually can move to execution faster because mm. we're not just a bunch of economists or whatever thinking about a grand scheme and then we kind of have to go to IT to figure it out. But we can actually start creating stuff there and then in the discussion, which for me is extremely empowering and really good fun to work with. So not always easier, but a lot better. Brilliant. And Stephen as well. I don't think tech can take away from the human relationship part it can support it and learn from diversity, not just of gender, but of background, of race, religion, whatever. I think you make better decisions and have a better company. And I'm a great believer in equal opportunity, particularly for those who have a less fortunate upbringing. We have a duty of care to do that. But it's not just the duty of care. You actually have a better business if it's diverse. And there's absolutely no doubt about that in my mind whatsoever. And in this day and age, more fool any CEO who doesn't recognise that. Fantastic. Thank you. I'd like to express my deepest thanks to the panellists, Stephen, James and Sylvie. Your insights have been absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Find out more about how Dun & Bradstreet can help your business be better. Contact us at marketinguk at dnb.com. And remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts.